All right, all right, all right, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this late March edition of the GFP Podcast and Blast. I am Chris Hull, communication specialist with GFP. Late March, I uh, gotta admit, probably one of my favorite times for as much as I love to hunt, much as I love to ice fish, something about shore fishing. Uh, I just love it. Just the relaxation of it, the chillness of it, but... It's also, I'm at a point in my life where I've fished a lot of spots and not caught fish from shore. And I, I, I have go-to spots, and we're, depending upon which way the wind's blowing and whatnot. Um, kind of get off tub- topic, but it's also, you know, one of those important things. I, I try to keep a fishing journal. Um, you know, days, temperatures, winds, that kind of stuff, what I caught, what I was using. And I this is the time of year where I really go back to it. Um, Love to shore fish and uh, really helps. So another thing I really love to do um, from shore is pike fish on Lake Oahe. I grew up doing that up in northeast South Dakota with a bunch of my buddies. And uh, the ice is off Lake Oahe, at least on this lower end. And I've seen some pictures from the upper end of Lake Oahe where some big northerns are caught. So love doing that. So I might even try to get one of my pike fishing gurus on to uh, talk about that spring fishing in the future but for right now get outside there's water opening up all over the state um so get outside find a spot maybe where some current is is running um maybe where you know it's shallower and those back bays warm up a little faster get out and go drown a line uh throw out a crappie rig throw out a slip bobber throw out a lindy rig whatever you want uh, pitch jigs or cranks do whatever you want but now's the time to Put some hip boots on or some waders and get out and uh, fish. That in mind, starting to see a few um, few reports of some winter kills. Uh, that's fairly common, especially a lot of these places we're going. We went into the winter with, you know, low water levels. But winter kills, I think I saw one on Campbell Slough and, and a few others. If you see some of that, if you're out and about and you see, a you know, what you think is a big fish kill, please reach out to your local game warden. Um, give me a shout uh via email or phone or call a gfp office let them know and a lot of times you know they they might not know about it but if they do know about it sometimes they can even explain to you what's what caused it you know there's a lot of different weird things out there viruses on fish and there's all kinds of different things lots of times it's low oxygen of course or poor water quality but if you see something like that please reach out to your local co and uh fill them in and you might get some good information that being said, speaking of good information, got part two of our kind of our statewide fisheries journey that we're taking in the next month. Last week we had uh, Lower Missouri River guys Jason Sorensen and uh, Chris Long Henry. Today I've got the Upper Missouri, which is Sharp and and Wahi, and then those area fisheries around the river. Uh, Mike Smith. Uh, Mike's been on a few times on this podcast before, talking about zebra mussels and and uh, AIS species. And uh, Mike's got a really good. This was a lot of fun. We talked a lot of sciencey stuff about fish movement, and and we talked about spawn and walleyes and a bunch of stuff. Really cool episode. Um, it's one of my favorite ones I've done in a while. So hope you like it and sit down and take a listen. Short and 
right, all right. Welcome back to another episode of the Game Fishing Parks Podcast and Blast. I am your host, Chris Hall, and I am with a friend of mine who's been on this podcast at least times. at least once before, twice yeah. before. Uh, Mikey Joe Smith. Uh, Mike, what's your title nowadays? I am the Upper Missouri River Fisheries Supervisor. That sounds fancy. It does. <laughs> Basically, it's Wahi Sharp in about 12 counties either side of the river up here. Right, and uh, you've got to do a lot of stuff. You are our AIS guy. You were a, a, a fisheries biologist, which you still are, but now you kind of oversee all these guys and gals out here, and you just told me you're kind of getting ready for walleye spawn. So. Yeah, well, we, we, every year we start walleye spawn in, in April each year. Um, we run a crew out of the northeast, but a big chunk of the eggs come from the Missouri River here, and we run our operations on the Grand and Moreau River. And so that's anywhere from about a week to three weeks, depending on how many ripe fish we get, and try to meet our egg goal for the whole state. What's what's the egg goal? And explain that just a little bit. So every um, over the winter months, we kind of develop our stocking strategies, figure out what we need in specific lakes. Um, and we do that statewide, and then we come together as, a, as an aquatics or a fishery staff and develop uh, that need statewide. And the hatchery has a you know, some formulas they use to figure out how many eggs we need to get to meet those goals and. You know, on a big year, like when we're stocking lower Lake Oahe, it might be upwards of 150 million or 200 million. Um, but this year, a little lower, back down below that 100 million mark uh, to hit those priority water bodies. So most of these lakes that people think of that are, you know, they're going, you know, walleye fishing, like say in the Northeast or whatever, is there not a lot of natural reproduction in those lakes for walleyes, correct? Yeah, that's the primary driver of our stocking strategies. If we're not seeing some year classes come through or it's low reproduction or even low recruitment, you know, maybe with, maybe there is good reproduction, but those fish just don't survive. They're eaten. Environmental factors kill them off. That's what we base our stocking strategies on is when we have low low recruitment and reproduction in a lake. Sure, and then you they're kind of on a cycle or whatever, and you, you're relying on your hatchery or your fisheries folks in each region to kind of come back and go, you know, Hey, Clear Lake or Roy Lake or whatever could use a bump because we're not seeing any recruitment. We're not seeing any little fish. Yeah, and we kind of classify things as A, B, and C priorities. And those A priorities are those waters that have a, historically have had poor recruitment. And so we know we need to stock those, you know, every three years or so. We don't really want to stock every year. We don't want year class on top of year class because then we might stunt growth. But, sure. yeah, a lot of those A priority waters are about out on every other year rotation. So talk about the spawning because I've done it and I know you guys don't want me to go out with you anymore because every time I go out the wind blows 800 miles an hour. So what, I mean it's a big crew of folks and you're going every day. Um, Talk about that process and what you actually do. Yeah so spawning especially on the river is a statewide effort. So we'll have um, our staff come in from Sioux Falls, Chamberlain, here in Fort Pierre, Mobridge and then also out in Rapid City. Um, it's a minimum of 12 people each day on crew, um, and we'll go into the two operations, six people in each operation. Um, we run trap nets to catch the fish. Um, we'll separate the males and the females right there on the boats, and then go back to our spontoons, giant pontoons that we use to be our base of operations. Um, and if the fish are, if the females are ripe, we'll take those eggs that day. Um, if the females are green, we'll put them in some holding pens for up to three days, and we'll see if we can get them to ripen up. And we do that every day, and you know, barring any big wind events, which is probably our biggest challenge is when we get bad weather, um, yeah, we'll take a, anywhere from a couple million all the way up to 20, 30 million eggs in a, in a day. Say a five-pound female, 24-inch female, how many eggs she got in her? 
I think it's somewhere along the lines like four thousand eggs per pound, something sure. like that. So yeah, probably in that twenty thousand range. And and he's he he kind of gla- uh, glazed over this, but don't let him kid you. These nets have big long leads out into the water. So if a fish is swimming along the shore looking for spawning, it hits that net and you know, as a barrier and comes into a you know a pen. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work to pull them up. Um, you know, you get to see some cool big fish, but a lot of these big fish are carp and northerns and stuff that we aren't looking for. So you're in a boat that might be rocking and rolling, a flat bottom boat, by the way, that might be rocking and rolling, and you're netting out 100 pounds of carp out of one net. And you think that's cool for about three nets. And then your back starts hurting and you're in waders and you got blisters. And I know I'm a soft desk jockey now, but even when I was tough, it's hard work. And then uh, if the wind blows, which it never does on the Missouri River, uh, you got to dig those nets out. And I remember one day I was with Hanton, and I, I think you had just maybe started, Mike, and... We were talking about not even going out. Yeah. And uh, somebody goes, well, we have those nets, and they're going to be a disaster tomorrow. And I, somebody, I think it was Geno Adams, goes, they're already a disaster. I can guarantee. And we spent the entire day, we never touched a fish. We spent the entire day digging nets out. Yeah, and that, if we get the wind from the wrong direction, so northwest winds are predominant wind, and so if we have a strong wind coming and our nets on the south side are in, it's not uncommon for them to be buried under eight feet of shale. And there's, there's no good way to get them out but trying to dig them out, and it's, oh, it makes for a long day. My back hurts just thinking about it. And then, you know, the funny thing is I always give the guys out here, you know, like Potter and Hanton, like, how come you guys aren't fixing nets? Because they spend a lot of time in the off season, whether it's trawling nets and big giant seining nets or, or those things. I mean, they're working on those things all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's the bulk of our, our winter work as fish biologists is repairing gear because right. – Fish and the environment are tough on gear. Whether it's a multi-filament or a monofilament net, it's it's going to get holes in it, and it takes a lot of work to keep that equipment up. Right. Uh, it's probably time for me to do another spawning video. Maybe we should think about that. But we do have some of that content uh, on our YouTube page, so go check it out. It, it's it's really cool. Everything from the spawn tune to um, you know spawning the fish with a turkey feather and all this stuff that goes into it. Co- cool stuff, but. Take a look, and uh, I wish you well, Mike. Maybe I'll come on. <laughs> I've been thinking about it now, but uh, my back hurts just thinking about it. So let's talk about, um, you know, the two main reservoirs that you're in charge of, Sharp and Wahi. Let's start with Sharp because I know there's already some fishing going on and, and good fishing if you're out there in the mornings. But talk about the general outlook of what Sharp is shaping up to be this year. Yeah, you, we joke a lot, and I, I think I've been quoted in the media a few times saying sharp, sharp is a walleye factory, and it is. I mean, what I mean by that is we have very solid reproduction and recruitment, um, so lots of walleye out there in the lake. Um, we have a, a gizzard shad prey base in Lake Sharp, which is great during those warm months when we have a lot of shad, but as soon as it starts to get cold, those shad will die off. And so it's really feast or famine for the walleye. They, they grow really fast in the summer and then grow almost nothing at all in the winter. And so by what I mean with walleye factory is we've got a lot of fish out there that are between 13 and 18 inches. And, you know, 20-inch 20, 20 fish are out there in Lake Sharp, but they're pretty rare. And a 20-inch fish could be upwards of 25 years old. They just don't grow once they hit about that 18-inch that mark. The fish don't grow very fast just because they're, 
their metabolic or their energy demands are so high that they can't get enough food to put on a lot of length. I think that's, uh, and I've used that stat before, and I think I've gotten called BS on that more than anything because a human, you know, we're sitting there talking and I'm looking at your kids and you're looking at my kid and my kid is like almost as tall as me. And right at some point she's going to quit growing, but people don't think about that in like a fish sense. You know, they think, okay, uh, you know, this, this 18 inch walleye is four years old or whatever. And, and in, if I throw it back in five years, it's going to be eight pounds, like every fish. Right. And it just doesn't work that way. No, it, it doesn't. It's incremental growth. And, you know, it takes about three to four years for a fish to hit 15 inches in Lake Sharp and Lake Hawaii. It's almost, almost identical. Um, but yeah, once they hit that length, that's where that metabolic demand really starts to come into play. And so the way we age these fish is we look at their ear bones and it lays down rings almost like a tree. And so when you look at those, yeah, those first three years, there's nice spacing between those. But then when you get out to year seven, eight, 15, it, those lines are almost right on top of each other, which shows us that there's really no growth going on there. Right. And, you know, so the difference between, you know, you get those year classes, year classes with the air quotes, right? Oh, yeah, that's a great year class of 17-inch fish. And then you've got a 20-inch fish that could be 7 years old or it could be 18 years old. And it's just where were you, how close were you living to your kitchen? Or, you know, that, exactly. kind of, that kind of thing. It's almost just like a coin flip, right? It is. And, you know, we can confidently age things out pretty far um, just with the, you know, the equipment that we have and the techniques that are available. But, yeah, those... There's really clear distinctions for those first couple of years, but then once you get into that 8 to 25, those fish could be anywhere from 16 inches to 21 inches and all in between there. It's, right. it's, it's just a, a crapshoot for them, whether there's prey around or not, and they can grow. Right, and then, you know, you see that somebody come in with a 10-pounder in the tail race or something, and you're like, what the heck, you know? I mean, we know those fish are there, and I've seen them. I saw a guy catch one uh, through the ice this year that was eight and a half pounds on sharp and it's like huh yeah they're here it's yeah. just and, and we've actually seen and we've had a study going on the past few years on sharp we're seeing a lot of entrainment or fish going through the dam into lewis and or lake francis case and that's probably the same case we have with the wahi too so a lot of these big fish especially on the upper portion of lake sharp those could be a wahi fish that made it through the dam huh. and so they you know a, a portion of them will die in the turbines and, sure. you know the barrel trauma the change in pressure but there's some that survive so those could be a wahi fish too huh ah, that's cool so this time of year obviously these fish and, and Sorensen and long henry talked about it in my previous episode you know just kind of it seems like these fish move a little bit you know you see more on sharp like that that fishing action starts closer to the dam and obviously that's because you know a lot of years that's where the open water is but i mean so this year, what are these, these fish like right now? They're looking to start spawning. Are they spawning yet? Or are they just starting to set up? They're getting into that, that pre-spawn phase. And, you know, across the country, what kind of happens is the males will stage in some areas, um, generally shallower water areas where there's maybe some running water. Um, they'll stage up there probably about this time of year. Um, maybe it's a little early up for South Dakota. Um, but, yeah, the, the males will come in, and then as soon as the females are ready, it's – it's game on. As soon as female, right females show up, it brings males in from pretty far away. And you know, a lot of this probably depends on water flow, what we've got coming through the dams and, and what time of year that's going on. But, yeah, it's it's time for a walleye to get to doing what they do. And right. they should be, you know, 
at least right now, the, the fish should be biting pretty well. Uh, once we get into the hardest spawn, that's when the bigger females won't necessarily be biting as hard. They've got their minds on other things. But, right. Yeah, it's, it's time to time to get out there. And, and I mean, you know me. That I, I love to shore fish, so this is my favorite time of the year because you can go and realistically shore fish and catch fish, for, catch walleyes from shore all day long as long as, you know, if they're moving through and... and and especially in those low light periods, and, and even in the nighttime, you can catch them all, you know, all day long as long as you got some decent weather and you know wind and mud and all that stuff. But um, it, it's just the opportunity is there for shore anglers, and there's a ton of access. So. Yeah, and this Fort, pier, Fort Pier area is really great for that. You know, the Stilling Basin provides great access uh, for shore anglers as well. I mean, boat anglers too. But there's some good areas in that Stilling Basin that gets hit pretty hard. Um, the tail race itself. Uh, if you venture down the rocks, I mean, that can be tough for some folks, but lots of good access along both sides of the tail race. Um, and then even even sometimes down in Farm Island in that area, mm-hmm. sometimes people catch some decent walleye out of there too. Yep. Um, let's let's talk about those gizzard shad. You brought that up just a little bit. Obviously, the main main bait fish, um, main prey species for for walleyes and other fish really in sharp. And and you said there. They're a warm water fish, right? So, in the winter, most of those die off. Yeah, and you know it's it's not necessarily great for walleye growth, but it is great for the overall um, fisheries biology of Lake Sharp. You know, in some areas, especially down in like Nebraska, Kansas, gizzard shad are a, are a nuisance fish because it doesn't get cold enough to kill enough of them off, and they keep growing, keep growing, and once the shad get to be a certain size, they're too big for walleye to right. eat, and that's when they cause some problems with water water chemistry, productivity, and those sort of problems. We're kind of lucky up here where the majority of them do get killed off by that winter, so we don't overpopulate with shad. But enough of those adults grow big, get to that, you know, I think the world record shad is out of Lake Sharp. It's like six pounds or something like that. Those fish will make it through, and they, they provide the spawners for, or the, the fish for the next year. So we're kind of in a perfect location right now with our climate that the bulk of them get killed off, so we don't have a problem with fish, but we have enough that they... Um, have successful spawns every year for prey. Right. Now, I remember moving here and the first time, you know, in the spring, seeing those gizzard shad and they're up shallow and they're raising cane along the rocks or whatever. And I thought they were white bass. I'm like, what in the heck, you know? And then I finally, I accidentally snagged one. I got no idea what this is. You know, I worked for tourism at the time and I threw it back and then somebody's like, well, that's a gizzard shad. You know, that's what walleyes eat, you know, all the babies. And I'm like, oh, okay. Moving on, I guess. And you guys did some studies with gizzard shad too, right? You even put transmitters in them and stuff? Yeah, we put transmitters in the in some fish that we caught in various locations. Most of them were Farm Island, but we went down to some of the other boat ramps further down downstream just to see if there were some kind of some important areas for shad nurseries, you know, if something we needed to work to protect or enhance to keep make sure we had enough fish each year for our prey. Um, found out some cool information, you know, it definitely showed that farm island is the hot spot for gizzard shad, shad production on the lake um but also some of the other ramps down lower you know down into gray and in those areas those are pretty important too and shad move quite a ways they'll, they'll go up and down the river quite a ways huh yeah that's cool let's talk about some other you know fish um obviously th- this time of year you know get out find some open water in this pier area on on, on sharp or francis case or wherever you are but let's talk about some of the other fish. You know, when I moved here, um, 
you know, the white bass run was a big deal. And then we've had some high water and, you know, do you call them high water incidents? I think that's what, is that the scientific term? <laughs> Flooding. Um, and it seems like that fishery has really changed and even disappeared. And are you seeing that, like, when you're net in your nets and your studies during the summer? Yeah, we are. We've, we've seen decreased catches of white bass. And that it's all, white bass are kind of boom and bust. When they're here, they do really, really well. And then um, some are harvested. But, yeah, like a flood event will really, really take a toll on them. And we haven't really seen them rebound probably since the 2011 flood on Lake Sharp. Uh, there's still some out there, but they're definitely a smaller portion of our net catch now. Right. And, and even Oahe, I remember days where... You know, if you found a, a white bass, everybody was reeling up because they would take all your minnows. Yeah. You know, like back in the Cheyenne, you're like, oh, my God, you know, put twister tails on because the white bass are going to eat all our minnows. And I, I really don't see them on Oahe as much as I did either. So. Yeah, and I think it was probably about 15, 20 years ago there was kind of a, a die-off with some disease issues, but that really hasn't been the case lately. It's all been just water levels and, and flow that have really not been great for, for white bass production. What what are some of the, you know, we talked about white bass, like on Sharp and Oahe, some of these maybe underutilized or underappreciated or whatever. I mean, a couple species that, that provide that opportunity that maybe a lot of people don't. I think the biggest tackle. one biggest one's probably channel catfish. Um, they're actually considered a, by state law, they're considered a rough fish in the Missouri River. So there's, you know, very few limits on them. And you know, Oahe tail race is an excellent, excellent uh, fishery for, for channel catfish. And big fish, lots of fish, and that water is so cold that the flesh actually tastes mm-hmm. amazing. You don't get that muddy flavor that you do in some other small waters. Um, so catfish are all over. Fort George, DeGray, all the way down there, Joe Creek, really good catfishing. I think probably the biggest up-and-comer, and it's a nationwide trend, is is the smallmouth bass. We've got a pretty good smallmouth bass, bass population. Similar story with the growth as we have with walleye where they do reach a plateau just based on the seasonal prey um, but such a great fighting fish and bass fishing is only getting more and more popular that we have a really good um, both lakes wahi and sharp great for smallmouth bass yeah and i i think you know i mean you know me i like to fish whatever's biting but i always laugh about that spring fishing where you're you know you're drifting in a boat with your buddies and you're pitching jigs and you know you catch a 17 inch smallmouth bass and everybody's mad and you know i look at my daughter and her eyes are as big as you know the bottom of coke cans because she's reeling it in and it's jumping you know and and you're like i you know that's awesome you know because they're not quite as finicky they'll hit lures and that kind of stuff and um so yeah that's to me the that kind of you know bycatch if you're a walleye fisherman i guess it's as fun as it gets and, and those you're right with those catfish i mean there are times, especially usually around Mother's Day, you get some people that come to this area that have found what kind of catfishery we have, and they will fill coolers full, and they will take them home. And you see, you know, maybe some locals, like, shaking their heads. But, man, it, you know, they got to be on to something. And I, I ate a bunch of them last year when I when I was shore fishing those catfish. And, yeah, you're right, they're good. And you have a catfish fry, um, you ain't going to have many people say no to come over and, and eat with you. So. Right, and we've got a cool new opportunity with the uh, float line fishing this year on the river, and that's I, we don't know yet how many people are going to utilize that, but that could be a potential, really awesome fishing opportunity for folks here that want to go after catfish. I, I kind of want to try it, and I kind of want to do it with my kayaks. I think it would work well with the kayak. You know, just throw them out and then float along with them, and yep. and I, 
If you're allowed up to ten of them out there, yeah, you just right. throw Oh, I'll have a disaster. I've seen, seen designs for jugs and pool noodles right. and all sorts of stuff, and I think, yeah, just paddling along with them would be really fun. Heck, yeah, some different depths. and uh, Yeah, I, it, I think it'd be a, a lot of fun. I know me, I'm going to do it, and it's going to be tangled up in about ten <laughs> seconds, but I think you're right, and there's certainly some opportunity for some people who are maybe think outside the box to really stack some fish up. and yeah, That, and paired with our... Um, trot lines and hoop nets that right. are available. Yeah, you could you could catch a lot of catfish here. And again, it's pretty liberal limits because it's considered a rough, a rough fish by state statute. Right. So as we let's keep keep with sharp as we transition from you know this April, March, April, May, and then hitting into like May and June when we probably see our most anglers coming this way to fish because everybody's got some time off and doing all that stuff. Those walleyes are shifting post-spawn what are they doing post-spawn where are they going yeah i think our biggest bite when we so our highest harvest months are april may june and may and june are pretty big harvest months um, and catching months i think the bulk of the pressure then moves kind of further downstream towards like the west bend area uh, maybe jigs landing on the west side Um, that's where people do really well the flats out there uh, really hit hard and that's where the, uh, the bulk of the pressure and fish i think are hanging out um, Stony Point does get some pressure. That's a little bit more of a longer boat ride, so mm-hmm. folks don't want to do that sometimes. But, um, yeah, I'd say that middle portion of the lake. So from about yeah, about West Bend upstream to Fort George is probably hit hardest at that time of year. Sure, and those fish are, you know, 10 to 20 feet, would you say? And and what are they doing? Are they just like, oh, my God, now we got to eat because yeah, we've been spawning? They're staying shallow, and they're cruising for food. Right. Yeah, it's a pretty big energy expenditure to, to spawn, and there's a lot of um, a lot of energy expended just swimming and producing the eggs and, and the sperm as well. So, yeah, they're, they're cruising the shorelines for food, looking for something to eat. Um, I had something interesting happen, and I'm going to ask you, and, and I know you're going to say it could have been many, many things, but... So zebra mussels on Lake Sharp, well, how many years ago was that? 2018, I want to say. Right. So four years, three years, four years. So we were at West Bend. It was a fairly calm day, and uh, the weed lines were were out a little further than I seem to remember, like 12 feet probably, 13 feet. It was a fairly calm day, and, and we were just kind of farting around with the boat along that weed line. And I couldn't, I had my daughter and, and a buddy and a couple of, and one of my daughter's friends. We couldn't keep all our poles in the water because those walleyes were in, on that weed line so hard. But my buddy was talking about, I don't remember these weeds coming out so far. Is that a zebra mussel impact, you think? I mean, that will do that, right? I mean, yeah. it'll filter the water, make it clear. I said, I think these weeds are always here, but it's just so calm that we can see the defined weed line. Have we seen any any sort of fishery effects or lake changes in your brain, because you and your crews are out there, from those zebra mussels yet on Sharp, or do you think we'll see anything like that? You know, I don't think we've seen anything major that we can solely attribute to that yet. The, the lower end of the lake was definitely a bit clearer last year, um, and you're right, the weeds definitely can grow better than that. I think last year, though, we had just had so much growth. The Bad River really didn't flow much at all last right. year, and that, that puts a lot of sediment into Lake Sharp. And so with that not flowing, that can kind of clear things up. Um, but, it, yeah, it was definitely clearer down, especially in that right around uh, Big Bend Dam last year. But I don't know that we could necessarily say it's attributed to zebra mussels yet. Right, probably not yet. But it, it is amazing you bring up the Bad River, how much and how far that can affect 
a fishery. I mean, if you get a rain and that Bad River is pumping, that makes chocolate milk all the way down to the dam. And oh, I mean, yeah. and that's a long ways. And it's hilarious to see, you know, when it starts. Like there are times when I know that we've gotten a rain down in that Bad River drainage, and I'll just start driving down towards like Joe Creek and looking at those over, like the overviews where you can see the lake. And you can just see it looks like somebody spilled chocolate milk and it's just running down a table. You can see it. And the effect of how many days it could totally screw up fishing. Oh, yeah. It, it'll put a plume all the way, just like you said, all the way down there to West Bend. And it's, it's some people have some luck fishing the edges of that. And some people try to fish inside of it. And, again, walleye are a sight predator. So if, right. they, if they're not seeing something, it's going to be tough to get a bite out of that. Yeah, it can mess up fishing for miles. You can have a beautiful day and you'll go out there and it's like, oh, yeah, I can't see anything. <laughs> Um, let's talk about, um, let's, let's go to Oahe now. So Oahe ice levels on this lower end or ice cover on this lower end is finally starting to kind of break up. In fact, I, I said when we were talking earlier, I was going to go pike fishing last weekend, but the wind changed and pushed the ice shelf to where I wanted to fish. But, um, let's talk about once the ice comes off Oahe, um, what are those walleyes doing? And and you can break down Oahe, you know, up Mobridge and whatever. But, um, you know, w- what's that general outlook? I guess for Oahe, I guess. So I guess what we to start with what we saw in our nets last year. Um, the first thing, first takeaway for Lake Oahe was that we had um, pretty similar catch per unit effort or no, relative abundance of fish as we've had in previous years. Um, but our bigger fish had really good condition. And the way we measure that is uh, essentially the weight of the fish compared to its length. And so our fish over 20 inches were really fat, really good good conditioned fish. Um, our younger fish, not quite as good a condition, but right along with the average. So nothing to be concerned about there. Um, we've been stocking Oahe now for four years. We're not, gonna, we're not planning to stock this year. Um, we've seen great results from that. And so what that really did was... We've had historically had pretty poor reproduction on lower Lake Oahe, almost almost non-existent. And so with this stocking, we've really been able to boost the numbers of, of younger fish on the lower end of the lake. And so as the ice comes off here, I would expect that yeah, we'd still have something similar to Lake Sharp, where we'd have walleyes up shallower, um, cruising around the shoreline looking for areas to spawn, looking for that rocky cobble kind of stuff. Um, those fish are probably just starting to get into that sexual maturity age. So uh, yeah, I would expect shallower fish this year down the lower end. Did that, so you're talking about that stocking, and, and I kind of got a smile on my face because we talked about that for years before you guys did it. Did that surprise you, like the results of this lower end stocking? That was probably the biggest crow I've eaten as a fish biologist. <laughs> I didn't want to bring it up. <laughs> I, I did not think it would work. And, and the reason I didn't think it would work is that Lake Hawaii is so huge. I mean, our population estimates are, are astronomical numbers of fish. I mean, I was thinking, what what are 200,000 fingerling is going to do for lower lake Oahe, and we we researched it really intensively over the past four years in, in a couple different ways we had the hatchery mark some fish with a chemical that glows under uv light so we could tell if a fish was from the hatchery then we got really scientific with it and did olive microchemistry where we compare the heavy metals in the water of lake Oahe to the heavy metals of the water in blue dog fish hatchery and we found out we're getting upwards of 50 plus percent of the fish in some of these lower bays are made up of hatchery stocked fish over the past really years. and it's they seem to be doing well they're growing well um, we'll probably do another round of that odalist microchemistry stuff in the future to track those because 
the OTC stuff we can only track for a few years and that mark kind of wears off. Um, but that, that microchemistry stuff, we can track them 10, 15, 20 years down the road because that heavy metal is embedded in bone, so we can always find sure. that. But, yeah, it's been surprising. So that's what, why we're not stocking this year is we have a, a, a stacked-up year classes from our previous four years of stocking. So we don't want to keep piling year class on year class. We want to have some separation in there. So we're going to take a year off of stocking, evaluate, reevaluate, and probably do another stocking in uh, 2023. Right. And, I mean, you know as well as I do, and you probably know better than I do, for there was a lot of years there where you guys got to stock this lower end and you got to help. And, you know, it wasn't just you. It was, you know, every fish biologist that we have is just like, this isn't, you know, you look at it, even if you stand at the, Okaboji point and look and go what you know my god we're gonna put 200,000 little sardine you know sardine sized fish they're gonna be eaten or they're gonna disappear or they're gonna die and it was you know two years later people are like oh my god these fish are 12 inches you know we can't wait and then all of a sudden it's just like yeah the fishing down on this lower end is on fire and they're nice fish and they're in good condition and they're fat and you know we're catching them and you know they're accessible to shore anglers in the in the bays and yeah so it's crazy so i'm not picking on you but that was one of those things where it was just like we kept hearing it kept hearing it kept hearing it and then we decided to do it and, ah see we knew you guys would cave and well there's a lot more into it than that you know i mean did yeah. a lot of research and and let's go with it so. yeah the everything all the science was telling us it probably wasn't going to have an impact and so we put together a research study to make sure we evaluated it fully and that's the beauty of fish science you know something surprises you like this and wow we've got a new new strategy and it kind of happened at the perfect storm too because we've got a huge couple huge year classes of lake herring up on lake Hawaii, and those lake herring are great probably one of the best prey items you could have out there because they're super oily and they cause fish to grow really well and so the stockings and the increased population coincided with a lot of great high quality prey and so we've had a lot of good growth lake oahe now yeah let's talk about prey on on oahe talked about the lake herring um you know i think everybody equates uh lake oahe to smelt too but talk about those two you know primary things and how the smelt are doing and and that yeah so smelt have historically been the prey item on lake oahe and they still are an extremely important component um we go out every year and do a hydroacoustic survey basically a souped up sonar and then a computer analyzes those those graphs and tells us how many fish are out there with some some different modeling um, populations are, are still pretty good um, above the long-term average for for smelt um, but the lake herring or the cisco that's where the the big change i think has been on lake Hawaii. we've got a lot of those out there that's causing increased growth of our salmon you know we've broken our salmon record how many times over the past few years our walleye condition is, is through the roof and i i think that really is attributed to those lake herring that have come on so it's it's kind of a almost a two-tiered prey fishery. We've got the, the smelt that are the bread and butter, but now we've got these lake lake herring that are now the gravy on top that are really pushing things on Lake Hawaii. What do, you know, you talk about the smelt runs, you know, and they come in shallow and people are netting them and doing that stuff. What do lake herring do? Where do they spawn? How do they spawn? So lake herring start spawning uh, right below, or right before ice off. Um, and I don't, I think the reason they're doing a little bit better is we've had we had years of steady water, steady higher water, um, but when we have these lower, these years, it's just like the smelt, when we have years where the there's a lot of ice coming off early or dropping water, that just that sheer action of the ice moving around kind of destroys some eggs. Um, but yeah, I, 
again, I'm, I'm not 100% sure why we've had such great lake herring years. It's It really mirrors what we what biologists are seeing up at Fort Peck in Montana. That's what drives that fishery. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely not complaining. It's It's been a nice boom for, for Lake Hawaii. Right. So, you know, spring, uh, we're seeing, you know, the fish on sharp, you know, in, in the in the tail racer in the higher higher ends. Those fish on Oahe, they seem to kind of activate a little later. And is, is that water, do water temperature, because it's such a big lake, and is, is that what drives that, or? Yeah, a lot of it's water temperature, and then actually some of this spawning behavior is actually by, you know, phases of the moon, how much how much light's out there, photo period. Sure. Um, so, yeah, on Oahe, tip, typically almost, uh, you know, the lower end, like I had just said, was, was kind of poor reproduction. The bulk of the reproduction on Lake Oahe, in the South Dakota portion at least, is the Grand and the Moreau Rivers. The Cheyenne had been a good place, but that started to silt in quite a bit up in Foster Bay area. Um, but yeah, the, a lot of the spawners will be up there in the Grand and the Moreau areas. And um, yeah, I'm again, I'm not not 100 sure why why that it just is. It's, I there's guess, so right? many factors you can't pinpoint one. Right. But that bite really typically starts up around that Mulbridge area late April, May. Yeah, we, we've saw, we've seen people up there while we're spawning have some success. I think a lot of those are probably aggression bites, you know, just fish getting annoyed and strikes right. at it. Um, every year we handle fish that would be new state records. You know, those get released. We, right. don't, we don't kill those fish. Uh, but I think those fish, when they're spawning, they're not really out actively feeding, so it's more aggression bites. Right. But right after post-spawn, that is that is a hot spot, in the, especially the Grand River. When, we're, when the fish are done spawning, they're hungry, they're looking for food. Right. So then as we get into, you know, May, June, kind of that same thing. Those fish are really accessible in that 10, 15, 20 feet of water. And, you know, they will slide out in the middle of the day if you got a nice day. But they're now, same thing as sharp. They're looking for food. They're done spawning. They're kind of looking for food and really accessible. Uh, those dog days of summer, those fish, are they really sliding out and chasing those smelt and baby smelt and baby herring out in the abyss then or they are. i mean they, for the most part yeah for the most part they do move deeper and some folks do have success with that fishing those, those deeper um areas a lot of times you hear people fishing the drop-offs you know the right the steep drop-offs but yeah towards as it gets warmer a lot of sunlight those fish will move and start going after the herring and the smell right and in hawaii is interesting and i didn't really ever put it in my head you know you can go and find a you know a northeast lake where there's a weed line and fish a weed line. There's really no weed lines on on Lake Hawaii. <laughs> I mean, no, there's pretty much no vegetation in Lake Hawaii. You get up in the the spring, back of Spring Creek, Cow Creek, or any of those bays, there's going to be weeds up there. But for the most part, right. Hawaii is too deep, too cold for most weeds to grow. Right, it, and it took me. I, I bet I was here five, six years and fished that a lot before I kind of that in my head like, why? There's no weeds. You know, that, where are these fish going? And and if you can find some of that structure in shallow, you know, there's going to be fish there because there's baby fish or perch or whatever, right? And so that's why those fish, I get that asked all the time, where do these walleyes go in the summer? Well, there's no bait up. If there's no bait up shallow, you got to go deep and chase the bread and butter species, right? It's, it's probably more similar to like a Lake Erie than it would be to a Lake Ponset or something. Right. It's, it's so big and deep that, yeah, it's, the fish definitely don't behave the same way that Folks from Northeast South Dakota or Southeast South Dakota are used to chasing walleye. And as far as underutilized species, I think we probably covered it. I mean, cat catfishing can be amazing on on Oahe, and and that's one of those things I I know is underutilized, especially kind of in those 
not dog days, but those catfish will stay shallow. You know, you think of catfish as this deep water species, but those fish will stay shallow in the backs of those bays, and sometimes amazingly shallow, right? Yeah, they'll be, Cow Creek was one that comes to mind off the top of my, off the top of my head, and you get back into that water that's maybe a couple feet deep, and it can be just loaded full of catfish. Right. Um, but conversely, people will catch them on their downriggers when they're fishing for salmon. Right. All the way down to 80 feet. So, yeah, great catfish population, again, underutilized, something that, that people could really take advantage of if they wanted to. What, um, you get your hands on a lot of fish, and, and like you said, some big fish when we're spawning and stuff. When you're out there, what's the strangest, coolest, most interesting, whatever species that, you know, pops up and you're like, oh, yeah, that's... Yeah, for Lake Oahe, for me, it's burbot. Um, they are, it's a go- it's, it's a goofy-looking fish. When you pull one up, it just looks weird. It's got one whisker hanging down the front, and they're funky colors. You pull them off the line, and they curl around your right. arm. Um, but that's great fish for eating. People, they are you know, they, amazing. They boil them in 7-Up or butter or yep. whatever, and great. I would say Lake Sharp is probably the shovel-nosed sturgeon. We've got pretty good population of shovel-nosed sturgeon. Now, the, the season is closed to harvest on those, but... If you're fishing and you catch one and release it in the water, that's perfectly fine. But we've been doing some research on those, and definitely a, a cool fish, an ancient fish, one you don't typically see. Yeah, I took a kid out, a little buddy of mine, and uh, he'd fish some, but not a lot. And we we're in Fort Pier fishing from shore, and I put a pole out with a crappie rig on it, and it was like two minutes, and the pole's in the water, and I run and get it, and I hand it to him. And he's probably seven, and he's reeling, and, and he's getting beat. And I cannot figure out what this fish is. You know, I, I just can't. I'm like, what in the heck? You know, and I'm like, is it a big carp? Is it a northern? But it wasn't making a big run. And it's like, God, and I had myself even almost convinced, like, this might be a big walleye. And it was two giant sturgeon on, you know, one on each hook. And they were, they were both shovel nose, but they were, you know, big. And I was kind of disappointed, but I got a picture of that kid holding, like, both of them and as we're releasing them. And you would have thought it was a state record walleye because he fought, and he was so proud he brought those two things in. And they are, you're right, they are super cool fish. Yeah, it's, it's just one that you don't typically get to see. And, you know, we, we've we done some work with sturgeon. The Fish and Wildlife Service in town uh, does a lot of the work with sturgeon in the, in the past, and it still does. But a pallid sturgeon hasn't been found in this area for, for quite a few years. It's, it's really only shovel nose here, and it's... You know, the big scoot, it looks like a shark. Big scoots and right. whisker, bunch of whiskers, and they're they're a very cool fish. And it's probably, probably felt like he's reeling in a log or a yeah. rock. I mean, it doesn't swim a whole lot. Just right. big fish coming in sideways. Yeah, and there's two of them. So. Two of them, yeah. <laughs> um, kind of an off-the-wall question. You're on Sharp or Oahe. You're in your boat. How many different species of fish do you think you could catch in a day? Well, let's see. So realistically... You, you, the top ones that come right, you're going to get are walleye, smallmouth bass, and catfish. Right. Um, depending where you're fishing, you might hook into a drum, especially up here in the upper part. Um, there's some big, some buffalo in there as well. Um, let's see. White bass. White bass are definitely a possibility. Um, re- luckily, we don't really have a lot of bullheads, but there, there's a few right. in there. We've seen a few larger perch in the past couple of years, but I wouldn't say that's one you can right. count on. So, yeah, you're probably looking at... Yeah, five, Stur- six. Sturgeon. Sturgeon, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, and then on Oahe, who knows, you know, pike, we haven't talked about pike yeah. at all, but once ice out hits, you know, there's a lot of people that are, are now pike fishing, and 
and even pulling cranks and, and using their boats, and which is, I, I consider that cheating, but that's just me. But, you know, drowning big smelt or pulling big cranks or casting big spoons and stuff, I mean, that's a, and those fish are big, you know, they, they really are, and, and uh, that's a super underutilized, um, but it's getting more popular. I mean, it's, it's out there where it used to be, there was maybe, even in Pier, there was maybe 20 guys that were diehards, and now it's, there's a lot of dudes doing it. Yeah, it's a great way to break break into the fishing season you can go out there and sit on the shore and catch it and you realistically have the possibility of catching some really big pike yeah and we're you know we're worried about the drought in terms of boat access and things like yeah, that and talk about that but, but in yeah. all reality in terms of the fishery having a few years of low water where we get a lot of vegetation to grow on the shoreline and then as we fill back up that's what pike need to pull off a good right. spawn again and when that happens, you know, it will happen. Drought cyclical. We'll fill, fill Lake Oahe up again. When that happens, we're going to have excellent, excellent habitat for northern pike spawning and nursery areas. And same with some of the other uh, smaller warm water fish. You know, we used to have a pretty good crappie population up by Mobridge, and that's kind of taken a, taken a hit. So, again, the, the access issue is definitely one that's it's pretty rough, but in the long term, it's probably healthy for the fishery to go through these cycles. Uh, let's talk about access. I mean, I know your crews don't necessarily have a lot to do with it but your you know young earth and 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 the habitat and access crews do i mean we chased water all summer and we knew we were going to have to and pretty much looking at the same thing this year right yeah i think the last four i don't remember the exact number the last forecast i saw from the corps of engineers is that by the time we hit hit august we could be down about 10 vertical feet which I mean, that's that's a big drop, but then you also have to take into consideration the 10 vertical feet. That doesn't mean 10 horizontal feet on the right. shoreline, so that water could move down quite a bit. So I think there's some work, some plans in the in the works to get bushes landing a little more shored up, make that a little bit better access. But, yeah, we're chasing water again, and there's just some ramps that it's not feasible to, to get that access. But um, most of the lower end should be in pretty good shape. Those low water ramps that were in there, years and years ago are starting to emerge and there'll be some cleanup on those removing some right some sediments and stuff but there will still be pretty good access for most of Oahe. right the amount of sediment is amazing like i went down to bushes when they were I, just one day i just i was going to go out there and poke around and take some pictures and stuff i mean you're talking the biggest equipment you can about imagine moving <laughs> up a gabillion tons <laughs> of bottom of Lake Oahe that are on top of those ramps because when did we build those, 11, 2011, I think? The low water ramps? Yeah. Those were or was those it were probably one? in the 90s. I think those were old Corps of Engineers ramps. And yeah, I was I was here when, that, when they built those low ones, when it was really low. And you're right. I mean, I remember those low water ramps. I've been in Pier maybe a couple of years. I was thinking, this lake will never fill up again. Ever. If you start thinking about yeah. you're standing at the bottom of that low water ramp and you're looking up where the water used to be, you're going, holy crap, there's not that much water in the world and how fast it can fill up. But the amount of sediment that's on there now is is jaw-dropping. It is. It is. So we're lucky in this area that our parks staff is really on top of that stuff. Uh, they try to get as much of that off as they can. But when you get to those huge loads of sediment that it takes to get those lower water ramps in use, that's where contractors come in and kind of a funky story is we there's a there was a series of boat ramps at bushes landing and i think it ended up that we have four boat ramps at bushes landing in different water levels right low water levels medium water levels and so this has been an issue you know since the dams were closed trying to chase this water and 
right. do what you can, but it's it's a never-ending task for our park staff. Yeah, and it, it you know it is a priority, and, and people are asking me, starting to ask me, and I'm sure you too now, like, what are you guys going to do? Are you, you know how many ramps are you going to have open? You know, blah blah blah. It's kind of a moving target. You know, we have an idea, like you said, ten vertical feet. Ten vert- If you think about how far in some of these bays, how far you would have to start walking with the water at your toes and walk out to get to 10 feet above your, you know, five feet above your head or four feet above your head. It's a long ways. It's a quarter mile or more in some of these bays. And now think of all the sediment that's on top of it, right, seeping in there. There's a lot of stuff to move. And and it's not like you can just dig this trench and just, okay, here's the ramp. I mean, you got to move out stuff to the sides and it's... Yeah, it's crazy, and, and it, it's just like I said last time I was here. Like, we'll never this lake will never be full again, and two years later, it's full. And yeah, I think the previous historic low was in like 2008 or something like that, and then 2011 was the flood that filled Oahu back up. So yeah, it can right. it can drop quite a bit, but it can also raise quite a bit in certain conditions if the conditions are right for right. that to happen. And I think you know, obviously, we're we're affected. Oahe and our river system is affected by the snowpack. And I thought I saw eighty percent snow, but March, April, you know that that can be a big effect if they get some snow up there. You know, that's those are high snow months, or can be for for that for the Rockies. So you know, there's a chance, but man, it would really have to yeah. really have to have some big gully washers like we had in the flood years, uh, flood year that to even affect it so it's not looking great the big thing we're fighting against right now is i think the prairie soil moisture is so low that it would take a, a lot of water to first you know saturate that soil to get the runoff right and i think the latest update from the corps of engineers was that it was only trace prairie snowpack remaining so anything that was snow on the prairie is gone now yep. so it's it's all mountain snowpack and that's below average so it'll be a it'll be a low water year again uh haven't really found zebra mussels on Oahe yet, right? We have not. And, you know, honestly, if we were going to find them this last year and this year should be the year because we've had water dropping, so we should be able to walk the shorelines where water used to be and, and see adults there. And luckily, you know, we've we've got some pretty big efforts out there to try to slow the spread, especially from Sharp to Oahe. And anglers have stepped up to the plate and really done their part in pulling their plugs and, and going through our inspection station. So still sitting on the negative water list and, um, trying to fight that off every year. Right. Uh, let's talk about some of the other fisheries that your folks, um, you know, are in charge of. I think those are are easily overlooked because of Sharp and Oahe being, you know, like destination fisheries, p- places that people come from, from a long ways away. We're going to the river, you know, whether you're a South Dakotan or a North Dakotan or a Minnesotan, you're coming here because your season's closed. We're not going to talk about that today. <laughs> um but talk about some of these other fisheries that are maybe not necessarily hidden gems, but certainly important to local folks like me. Um, you know, the grasslands, for instance. What you know, there's a ton of fisheries out there, and they're low. Any worries? I know we're not necessarily in charge of some of those, but what are you seeing on some of these other smaller fisheries? So the grasslands should be in, in fairly good shape. Um, we're definitely lower, but the the saving grace of not having a lot of snow is that that snow didn't build up on the ice this winter and and create some winter kill issues for us so there's a few fisheries down there you know our our typical big ones down there richland sheriff smith um, those have some pretty good panfish populations in them and really good access to them and and we're working hard with our habitat and access folks to improve that shoreline access this year and next year to try to get that to be more of a 
summer fisheries potential because right mm-hmm. now the cattails grow up around right. and it's tough to get there so we're going to try to do some cattail work and get some more access down there um, i think probably the biggest hidden gem in our area and i don't know dan jose might get mad at me for this but spring lake up in up in the northern part of our area really has taken off with walleye um, some stockings were in there five six years ago and man those fish really did well and it got some pretty heavy ice fishing pressure yeah. this year and i think we had to build the new ice fishing access to get people on there with their permanent shacks and wow. stuff and that one's a great fishery up there in that part of the country and i think you know we don't have to name them all but i think if you any anglers were in the area or from the area and you go out and look at an onyx or one of our access maps and stuff and if you start looking there's a lot of little fisheries out there and most of them are pretty good i mean uh, there were snow bears on Spring Lake this year, this winter, for God's sakes, you know. Yeah. And I think there was people that, uh, you know, I talked to some people from up there, and they're like, we saw snow bears, and we just assumed they were going out on on Oahe, and all of a sudden, you know, one came driving by me on Spring Lake, and I was what the heck is he doing here, you know? So one thing, fishermen talk, obviously, and the word gets out. But the other thing is, you know, there are a ton of these small impoundments that, if you look on them, it's a map dot, right? It's a little blue. But if you start doing some research, and that research is out there on our website about stockings and, and nettings and doing all that kind of stuff, that, you know, it might not be a Lake Oahe experience, but it might be better. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of those places that are getting stockings or, you know, for what reason or another, have a super strong population of bluegills or crappies or perch, um, you know. And it amazes me that, and I'm going to, kind of put you to the wire here some of these impoundments because you know i fish a bunch of them the pressure that they get and the fish that they kick out year after year is jaw dropping now it might be you know one or two years of really good bluegill fishing and then all of a sudden the crappies kind of take over or the perch take over and then it kind of comes back around are they that fertile i mean it's it's amazing yeah and a lot of these we're talking about these smaller waters are, are panfish populations, and those are really boom and bust kind of populations. You'll have a crazy year class of, per, or of crappie out there, and honestly, we encourage people to harvest those because it is such a boom. We can't stockpile those fish. Right. They're not a long-lived fish. Their reproduction and recruitment is so variable that if they're there, that's when you got yeah harvest those fish when they're out there. And we've got a lot of those. Um, in this area with between the grasslands and some of these smaller waters all the way up to Mobridge and you know I think the best probably resource for anglers to find these kind of hidden gems is and we, we try to su- survey these with, with some regularity so it's it's not every year but there's a, a section of our fisheries reports called the net catch graphs you can go in there and you can select the Missouri River area and you can put um, crappie in there and it'll show you all the recent crappie nets and it'll show you a size structure so there's x percent of those are between zero and four inches right and, you know all the way up and so that's a really cool resource that can kind of point you to some of those hidden gems yeah and it's you know it's something and, and i get people you know because i'm involved with that winter fishing weekend and and the grasslands gets a big chunk of that pressure and there are people that get really mad about it and i understand because they have a a, a big love for the grasslands and you guys go in these ponds and you you wipe them out well two years later you wipe them out again. Well, it's kind of designed that way, like you said. I mean, these fish you can't can't stockpile them. Yeah. And but it is amazing that some of these small impoundments, just the fertility of them, and, and you know, I fish them a lot, especially in the winter. And you go out there, and you're like, there's not going to be a fish left. And then in the spring, I sneak out there with a kayak, and there's nobody out there. And you just 
beat on maybe it was crappies last year, but now all of a sudden the bluegills are like, oh, wow, these were small a couple of years ago, and now they're beautiful, right? Now I'm going to keep some. So it, it is those, those, the fertility of those ponds is, is amazing. Yeah, and we, we really don't do a whole lot of stocking hatchery product or anything like that down in the Fort Pier grasslands. The Forest Service folks do help, do help us move some fish around every once in a while, but we're looking at doing a new type of survey down there where we, you know, instead of doing these summer surveys with nets, we go in, in the winter and we're going to do kind of a standardized ice fishing survey. And what that will allow us to do is to, you know, get a snapshot of the population through the ice when a lot of these are, are the primary use of these fisheries. And then in the spring, it'll allow us to trap and transfer among all these waters. So sure. Sheriff Dam might have a bunch of bunch of uh, bluegill in it, and Smith Dam might be low on bluegill, so we'll move them around. And sure. It's going to allow us to be a lot more nimble in the future with making sure we have um, the best use of the resources we have out there So we don't, and so we don't have stunted populations in right. small waters. Too. And this just in, I'm in charge of that. Survey. You heard it here Come first. Come on out. You heard it here first. Um, no, nah, that's cool stuff, Mike. I appreciate your time. I think... You know, I think we covered everything unless unless we missed stuff. Um, we talked about some of this access on the grasslands. That's that's habitat stamp dollars, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, that's habitat stamp dollars at work, and that's what this was designed for. And we're going to be doing a lot of... A lot of it will be cattail removal, which is huge. You know, it's, it seems like it's low-hanging fruit, but just getting people that water is huge. We're going to be putting in um, some different wooden docks, some bump-outs, a lot of different... And some of these... Uh, ponds in the grasslands we're actually working with the forest service to put in some primitive boat ramps some even some plank boat ramps so it's oh, really, wow. really nice stuff too so it's this is what the habitat stamp was designed for is to get people to the water and we're going to work really hard to to get people down there in the grasslands and, and elsewhere in the region too but grasslands is a big focus this right week. and then you know um i got to be a part of some of that fish city work stuff on on like uh, richland and sheriff any more of that kind of stuff coming too yeah i think we've got I don't know, 80 or 90 fish cities sit out in the in the shop right now, and those are going throughout the region. And that's kind of – so access is the easy one. Habitat is the one that's tough, and it's probably the most important. We can get people to water, but if there's no fish there, what's the point? Right. And so we're going to be pairing these different projects together. So we'll provide access, but we'll also be doing these habitat improvement projects. And that might be a fish structure or maybe, you know, some – areas down in Chamberlain, they're looking at aeration for some ponds. and So a lot of different things. We're looking at doing something at Lake Louise where we test out all these different types of, of habitat structures and to see if maybe you know we can come up with something where if we want more bass, we should put in this structure. If we want more catfish, we should put in this structure. And this one is little catfish. So right. we're going to keep evaluating that. But yeah, it'll, it'll be a combined effort where we provide access, but we have to provide good habitat for the, for the fish there. Right. And that fish city thing, um, I, I know I did a video on our youtube page about that it's, it's basically it looks like a big plastic pine cone for lack and some are in different depths for rearing fish and and hatching laying eggs and hatching and survivability it's it's really cool so yeah that's cool and i and i know that like you said before the access part is easy you know we can go out and and blood sweat and tears and just pull a bunch of cat cattails and maybe make a dock or something but you know some of that other stuff these a lot of these dams and stuff are old, you know, and and so they get less fertile. So what can you do to give that a shot in the arm to put some fish in there and and have it have them be more successful and and raise more fish? So yeah, that's cool where stuff. everything we do in this office kind of interweaves with it. We'll we'll do the access and habitat, but then we'll do our fish stocking, trap and transfer, maybe some hatchery products, and so it all works together to to really create the the fishery the public wants and what what that fishery can sustain. You know, not everywhere can have walleye. 
and we right. have, we have to make sure we we put the appropriate species in there and so it all it's really amazing how this all intertwines to make a good fishery cool well thanks for your time i know we both got to go get kids because it's early release day and if we don't get them our wives are going to be mad at us so yep. but thanks for your time man interesting stuff and uh, i'm sure we'll be talking to you in the future thank you Just pass by without seeing bottom Good stuff from Mikey Joe Smith, District Fisheries Manager for Game Fishing Parks. Um, hope you liked it. If you got any ideas for future podcasts, give me a shout. Also, spring, um, you know, is for hunting too. Turkey hunting's right around the corner. Um, there's archery tags available, but turkey hunting is one of those things where it's really kind of sets itself up for mentored hunting. And there are mentored turkey tags. I totally encourage you to uh, take a new hunter, take a young hunter out. You know, you can sit in a blind. Yeah, you kind of got to be still and you got to get up early in the morning, but it's super visual or super, you know, um, like audio, like you're calling. And when they gobble, man, I'm, you know, I've done it a hundred times. And when they gobble close, your heart gets beaten. And it's a great way to kind of introduce new hunters, young hunters into that hunting world but it's super controlled it's not like pheasant hunting where you're walking and you can't predict when the shot's coming um you know typically you're going to hear that turkey you're going to see that turkey you're going to get that hunter a chance to get set up maybe on a pair of sticks or a you know shooting sticks or a or a saddle or something you know so they're good and stable and and uh, make a good clean shot but turkey hunting is a great way to introduce new people to uh hunting so Encourage you to check out that Go Outdoors South Dakota site. Uh, get set up with a mentored tag for maybe a young hunter. Maybe it's one of your kids or niece or nephew or neighbor kid that maybe has shown some interest. And, and take them out in the turkey blind and get them out and introduce them to hunting. So for that, uh, we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Hit the like, click, subscribe button. Um, leave me a comment if you got any questions. And uh, appreciate the time listening. Back my place where-